It's July 9th, 2014, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Rand Ozawa. First, we'll cover some local science and tech stories. Then we'll hear about a couple of events coming up from two news guests. And joining us today is Bill Hosey, and he's going to tell us about the International VEX Robotics Summer Games. And then we have Lila Nori from the Hawaii Conservation Alliance to tell us about the Conservation Conference called Navigating Change in the Pacific Islands. Finally, in our main segment, it's citizen science. We'll find out how the Nature Conservancy leverages the crowd and technology to locate invasive species. We'd, of course, love your questions and thoughts as part of that conversation. Be ready to call or tweet us. But first, the headlines. Over the past few weeks, we've shared several stories about research focused on the smallest organisms in the ocean. As critical as they are to the global food web, however, a new study is highlighting the importance of the largest animals in the history of the life of life on Earth. Whales have long been considered too rare to make much of a difference in the ocean, but the latest research describes baleen and sperm whales, known collectively as great whales, as ecosystem engineers of the ocean. Indeed, new insights are emerging as great whales recover from centuries of overhunting. Published last week in the journal Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment, the study was co-authored by Craig Smith, an oceanography professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. The study notes that the great whale population had been decimated by 66 to as much as 90 percent, a change that likely altered the structure and function of the oceans. But whales may now help buffer marine ecosystems from destabilizing stresses as their numbers recover. Because whales are among the long, longer-lived species in marine systems, the researchers say they can ease the impact of perturbations in climate, predation, and productivity. Whale activity from feeding, birthing, to expunging waste, or even dying drives significant marine productivity. Smith said in a statement, whales appear to harbor a specialized suite of animals in the deep sea, with many species requiring whale falls to complete their life cycles and persist uh, in the ocean. When whales uh, were removed from the ocean by whalers, these whale fail specialists lost their essential habitat. Now, that's, you know, that's interesting because when a whale dies, I mean, it uh, will sink uh, in the, you know, to the bottom, but there's a, a, a sort of a whole ecosystem that revolves around that dying carcass. Yeah, whale, whale falls mm-hmm. versus whale fails or fail whales. Uh, yeah, a 40-ton whale basically delivers massive pulses of this organic material to the bottom of the ocean, and there are species that are dependent on them. Mm-hmm. And in fact, as part of this study, they said, actually, we've probably lost a lot of those species during the decimation of these species that we didn't even know. We weren't even able to study and, and check on them. But, you know, certainly they're saying that where whales are active, um, they basically drive productivity in the ocean. In fact, the headlines about this study were all over the place as whale poop could be key to solving global warming. Because basically, if you have a lot of whale organic material, it drives a lot of these other uh, activities in the ocean. Well, you know, and I figure more whales, uh, if they are churning areas in the ocean that are perhaps considered dead zones, I mean, Mm -hmm. they could sort of get the nutrients and get the oxygen back into those dead zones. So, so I'm, dead all for, I'm all for more whales. <laughs> right. Dead or alive, they're good for you. Well, while the use of unmanned aerial vehicles by businesses and private citizens uh, continues to draw more interest and debate, the application of drones in scientific research continues to deliver significant results. Most recently, federal researchers flew unmanned aircraft over the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration announced yesterday that last month's first deployment of its Puma 
Aircraft demonstrated the value of aerial drones in their work. It was conducted in partnership with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The Puma has a 9-foot wingspan and weighs about 13 pounds with the range of about 50 square miles and a flying time of about 2 hours. The aircraft can be hand-launched from almost anywhere and captures photos and video. The mission to the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument was conducted from the research vessel the Hi'i'alakai and Puma drone taking several flights over the French frigate so- Shoals and uh, Nehoa. The objective was a survey of the monk seal population. Project scientist Todd Jacobs sent a special to West Hawaii today. The operation validated our hopes that we can use the aircraft in the monument for a variety of missions without harming the environment to get data that we wouldn't otherwise get. Next week, researchers will enlist NASA's Ikana unmanned aircraft system, which has a 66-foot wingspan, longer range, and higher resolution optics. They will compare data collected from both systems as well as with traditional survey methods. Now, if you uh, go ahead and Google the uh, Ikana, which is I-K-H-A-N-A, it's a, um, it looks a lot like the Global Hawk. And the Global Hawk was uh, one of those Predator drones. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, uh, I, I know they built a bunch of them, and NASA actually uses this one uh, without you know, any uh, weapons on it. Right. But, the, for, for but it looks very similar. Yeah. The, the Puma is much smaller, as noted. Um, there was actually recently stories about them deploying the Puma system at Stellwagen Bank Marine Sanctuary in Massachusetts. But the reason why that made like even uh, Engadget and stuff is because parts for that drone were accidentally shipped to a random person. And like, they posted pictures on the Internet like, what is this? thing, and, mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. and you know, it was a crowdsourced attempt to try to determine what this equipment was. But yeah, you know, drones can fly lower, they can fly slower than manned aircraft, they can gather data without disturbing wildlife, so I can see why it would be a valuable tool. Well, and of course, it's, it, uh, it can be done at a lot cheaper rate as well. Sure. And finally, a couple of uh, uh, stories we wanted to share with you. The University of Hawaii announced yesterday that it has two candidates to serve as director of the o- Office of Technology Transfer and Economic Development, or OTED. They are Fred Holt, currently at the University of Washington Center for Commercialization, and Neil Viloso, who heads the Commercialization and Strategic Alliance at Cleveland Clinic Innovations. Holt and Veloso will visit UH and make public presentations uh, later on this month. That's right, July 18th and I think the following week as well. And on the Big Island, Monday brings the monthly Tech Pauhana at the Nelha Gateway Center north of Kona. This month, the guest presenter is Don Thomas, who is conducting research on groundwater and geothermal energy resources that could be found in the saddle area of the Big Island. The event starts with networking at 5 p.m. Again, that's Monday, July 14th. For more information on this event, you can visit nelha.hawaii.gov slash events. And now for a deeper look at upcoming events, uh, joining us here in the studio is Bill Hosey, and he's here from Verizon to tell us about the upcoming International VEX Robotics Summer Games. Well, welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here and talk about it. It's a, it's a, a fascinating event. It's going to be hosted at the Hawaii Convention Center July mm-hmm. 10th through 12th, and uh, Verizon's just one of the many sponsors for the event. So why did Verizon choose the robotics as a as a uh, you know event to sponsor? Well, one, it, it kind of pairs nicely with what Verizon Wireless really does, and it's uh, the technology side of, of the world, being able to provide connectivity, uh, using that connectivity to allow students uh, and to develop uh, robotics that can communicate uh, remotely mm-hmm. and then autonomously as well uh, over not only just the, you know, 
you know, paired with the, the robot, but we've got one that we're going to be showing, the Vigo, which can actually be operated over the Verizon Wireless Network. Oh, so and I, but I presume that you're not going to be putting Vigo into the battle with these kids. No, no, there won't be a, a Vigo <laughs> drone out be, to, yeah, yeah, going rogue. Pitching any basketballs? Or yeah, yeah, that's right. No, it, we, we're trying to keep him from growing rogue. But uh, one of the things that we're excited to be able to do is to do the open up uh, the awards ceremony on Saturday with the Vigo unit. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Bert and I love covering robotics events. We attend as many as we can, including the VEX program. Um, and for those who aren't familiar, I mean. There are different scales, basically. So how large are these robots that these students are working with, and what are they going to be doing uh, for the competition? Right. So so the robotics uh, event is going to be hosting over uh, 100 uh, schools from around 10 countries. The uh, schools in Hawaii, about almost 40 schools from Hawaii will be participating from almost all the, the islands. And, and what's interesting is that it's going to be elementary all the way up through high school and even uh, young individuals that be ready to go to college. And they're developing these units that uh, not only can be manually controlled but are autonomous. Mm-hmm. And if you mm-hmm. think about that, having a unit that can go into a, a zone and then control itself and accomplish certain tasks is really kind of amazing. And, and these are young kids, elementary kids mm-hmm. that are being able to accomplish this. Yeah, I think uh, VEX has always been kind of interesting in terms of their – uh, the task that the robots have to perform, and part of it is an autonomous exercise, and then the other part is the actual control. So you said that it's a it's a an international, uh, I guess, field of competition. So there's other countries that are involved. Yeah, there's uh, countries: uh, Canada, China, Colombia, Egypt. So when they say summer games, they're really thinking like Olympics. It's not yeah, absolutely. Just and and if you think about that, from from what uh, our Hawaiian uh, Ohana are doing, it's it's they are competing against the world field. It's mm-hmm. not just uh, you know a local school. It is uh, world representation of some of the smartest kids you can imagine. And and not only just representing, but uh, my expectation is we're going to see a lot of victories from Hawaii. From what I understand, too, that uh, like um, first robotics was primarily uh, U.S. Uh, schools, and and Vex is is probably the the unique uh, element of Vex is that it's it's international. Yes. Now, uh, is is Vex still going to do the? Um, I think there's one during the school year as well. Uh, I'm not certain about that, but uh, we certainly can find out. I, I will say that uh, this is an inaugural event uh-huh. uh, that Hawaii, yeah, that yeah. Hawaii bid on, but it's unique in that what uh, what's going to be allowed is that the, a student can participate or a school can participate, and actually in the 2013 to 2014 year. Mm-hmm. And place and, and and win hopefully potentially win, mm-hmm. but then also there there could be uh, competing in the 2015 events and and that's never happened before. So this is an inaugural event that Hawaii has been very uh, fortunate to be able to to host. Well, this is always an exciting event. It's really like a sports. Uh, event, but for, I guess, geekier kids. I, and and these are large robots that are basically doing battle. Uh, so where uh, can someone go to find more information? Because it's open to the public. How can they uh, learn more about it? Yeah, the website is roboteventscom so roboteventscom so they can find additional information. But I also want to mention it's a free event. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the mission's free. So really, it, it, you're going to miss an exciting, an exciting uh, few days if you don't go to this event. Fantastic. Definitely. Yeah, want to check that out. Also, uh, well, thank you very much, Bill. Now, also here joining us in the studio is Lila Nori from the Hawaii Conservation Alliance, and she's going to tell us about this 22nd annual Hawaii Converse, Conservation and Conversation Conference. Welcome to the show, Lila. Aloha, Bert. Ryan, thank you so much for having us. Sure. 
We're super excited about next week, July 15th to 17th, also at the Hawaii Convention Center. We're ah. super excited that um, navigating change in the Pacific Islands has become the theme, given all of the things happening on the global scale with mm-hmm. climate change and our worldwide voyage hosted here from the Polynesia Voyaging Society. And some folks uh, also may know that we're hosting the Conservation Olympics here in 2016. The Conservation Olympics. The well, we're going to have to have you co- yeah, the come. The World Conservation Conference. So all of that wrapped together has mm-hmm. brought us to this point of um, quintessential moment to be talking about climate change here in Hawaii. So this conference has been around for 22 years. That's no small feat. Um, how has it evolved? Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't. I wouldn't imagine we were talking about climate change quite as much 22 years ago. No, absolutely not. It actually evolved really from a small group meeting in Volcano Big Island, about you know 20 people at the table wanting to work together and join and build bridges between researchers, managers, and scientists on how we can solve these problems that you know cross boundaries and cross islands. And now it's evolved to over 1,000 people, 300 of them students, 50 exhibitors, and 70 poster presenters all coming together into this huge collaborative uh, sharing of dialogue, research, and networking um, across the Hawaiian Islands and also the Pacific Islands. What, uh, what type of uh, speakers and presenters are you uh, having uh, participate in this? Are they primarily from the uh, academic arena, or are they a mix of academic as well as uh, nonprofits? As far as the, the regular presenters of the conference, um, we're so excited that mostly it's um, researchers, managers, and even community members, mm-hmm. cultural representatives that have come together in collaborative sessions, symposia, and forum to speak together, over 200 presenters. Mm-hmm. And there's two featured presentations that are called plenary keynotes, and those keynotes everyone can go to in the morning. Those are folks we're bringing from abroad, um, both the Honorable Jane Lebchenko, who was appointed by Obama um, as the the head of the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, mm-hmm. um, and now she's also professor and Pew Fellow and so on and so forth. So we're so excited to have her talk about coastal ecosystems and how we'll prevail together. But we also have our local keynote, Dr. John Azorio, here from UH Manoa's mm. uh, Center for Hawaiian Language, and so for him to link cultural indigen- indigenous issues into how we will move t- forward together. Mm-hmm. Now, you did mention there's a student component and poster presentations. Is it like a big science fair? I mean, what are some of the things that they're covering? Well, the the next gen program that we have is just growing every year. So Wednesday night, the public's welcome to be listening to not just student poster presentations, but scientists and researchers as well, and some other special you know talks and community speakers will be there as mm-hmm. well. And so that's all related to community, cultural, climate change, marine, terrestrial issues that they've submitted and um, cont- and been in a, in a competition for to be able to present. So you mentioned that there's probably about a thousand people that attend. Uh, what would you say the breakdown is from, uh, let's say, Hawaii versus maybe mainland and, and everywhere else? Good question. You know, I definitely say 90% is from Hawaii for mm-hmm. sure. We're getting an increasing number of Pacific Islanders and some folks that represent agencies here in Hawaii, but the, the bigger header ups from mainland. But mostly I would say, you know, Maui and Big Island really represent, besides the Oahu um, crew that come, mm-hmm. Maui and Big Island have had really high turnouts. Now, the Hawaii Conservation Alliance has been around for some time and actually itself exploring new technology. And from what I understand, um, if you come to this event, you're going to get to check out a new piece of technology that you've been working on. Absolutely. This this year, we launched the Conservation Connections mobile app that we've been working on. It's think of it like a Yelp.com for conservation. Mm-hmm. And so mm. everything you need to know about what, what and where conservation is happening and how you can get involved, how you can give back your time or your money, both for residents and tourists. Mm-hmm. And so you can go to conservationconnections.org to be able to get involved. Now, in what, uh, what sort of devices do you need to use the, the app? Oh, any device. 
device, any mobile device, and your desktop laptop is fine too. We want ah. to be accessible to all, so we didn't want to make a true app that would be only available on one one of your devices, but mm-hmm. really that would be accessible to all. So, so I'm curious, what would you like to see uh, people leave the conference uh, and and not only learn but do? With people who attend the conference, I want them to be inspired to work together and continue the fight because it's a good fight. We can't give up. And mm-hmm. it does seem like it's it's a hard one and that we might not make big strides that quickly. But if we keep at it and build our relationships together, we'd be able to find some solutions, some real progressive and innovative solutions to these issues that are happening right now. So uh, once again, if you could give us those coordinates, uh, where and when, and how can they find more information on how to perhaps attend this event? July 15th to 17th at the Hawaii Convention Center. Wednesday evenings open and free to the public. You can visit us at hawaiiconservation.org to find out more, register, or join us on our Wednesday public night. Sounds good. Well, thanks, uh, Bill and Lila, for joining us. Thank you for having us. Mahalo. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Jason uh, Sumi and Trey Maynard from the Nature Conservancy Shai Harnoy from Tamrod, Tamnod, Tom and Tomnod, Tom <laughs> and Stephen Ab- <laughs> Ambagus from Resource Mapping Hawaii. How has technology enabled crowdsourcing applications, and how can that help us with invasive species here in the islands? We'd, of course, love to hear from you as well. It's a full house coming up, but if you want to join that conversation, you can call 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live, so you can tweet us your questions at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. This is BiteMarks Cafe. What's wrong with hitting somebody anyway? This week on Radio Lab. We wonder about right and wrong. What is morality? How do people make this judgment? Is there a right? Is there a wrong? When does it start? Children really are beginning to develop a moral sense in the second year of life. And where does it come from? What we might call the inner chimp. <laughs> Ten commandments right, well, for God. Right, inner right. chimp. The science of morality this week on Radio Lab. Saturday morning at 10. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Next time on New Dimensions, you'll be hearing from Winifred Gallagher, author of Wrapped, Attention and the Focused Life. She'll be speaking about what happens in your brain when you focus on something. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Jason Jason Sumie and Trey Maynard, uh, also Shai Harnoy and Stephen M. Badges. Uh, Jason is the Director of Landscape Science, and Trey Menard is the Director of Forest Conservation over at the Nature Conservancy. Meanwhile, Shai Harnoy is the Senior Director of Geospatial Big Data for Tom Nod and Digital Globe. And by phone, joining us again is Stephen Ambadges, co-owner of Resource Mapping Hawaii. And how has crowdsourcing helped the uh, fight against invasive species? We'd love to hear your questions and comments. And that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 on the neighbor islands. Jason, Trey, uh, Shai, and Stephen, we want to welcome you all to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you for having us here. Thanks for having us. Now, I'd like to uh, maybe start off by having uh, uh, you guys, uh, maybe Jason, you can 
sort of uh, start the conversation off on, on kind of giving us a sense of what is the challenge uh, with our native ecosystems and, and um, you know, what are we up against? That's a good question. And, you know, the best way to answer that would probably be for Trey to tell you how we used to control weeds and what okay. we were trying to do before this project even started. Trey? Yeah, I think, um, you know, 10 years ago when we really started looking at the Australian tree fern and we realized how big of a problem it was on Kauai, uh, at the time the only way that we could actually detect it or map it was to fly back and forth in a helicopter at really low elevation right in the treetops with a GPS and map it. Uh, it was really expensive and extremely dangerous, and uh, after a few f- close calls, uh, we decided that we needed to, if we were going to try to battle uh, an invasion like Australian tree fern that had spread over 50, 60,000 acres on Kauai, that we were going to need a better way to map it. And also, uh, we were going to need a way to, um, to kill it uh, from the air, and, uh, because there's just absolutely no way to, to hike to all these different, you know, these individual plants. And, uh, and treat them. So we, um, at the same time, while we're uh, working with resources mapping, develop a mapping system uh, using the high-resolution imagery, um, we were also uh, developing um, an aerial method to c- try to control it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, what you, what you kind of described 10 years ago, flying over, trying to get GPS, I mean, was there a lot of uh, maybe margin of error introduced by that method? Well, yeah, the... the there was a margin of error in the sense that we weren't ever able to cover the entire uh, landscape. We were only able to fly along transects that were spaced about maybe 100 meters apart. And so, um, you know, we were ac- actually missing a lot in between each of those transects. So really all we were doing was just sampling, uh, just kind of getting a general idea of how many there were and, and how, what the extent of the distribution was. Mm-hmm. Um, it was highly ineffective and it was extremely time-consuming. We spent over 100 hours in the helicopter and uh, in, it was, you know, by the time we were finished, you know, I had chiropractor bills from my neck craning out the mm-hmm. side of the helicopter. And, and uh, I mean, just it was really expensive and dangerous. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it was just not totally inadequate. Yeah, you're making my neck sore just talking about it. <laughs> and I would imagine that helicopters also have a noise element and probably a community impact that you're going to have to be dealing with. So obviously you're looking for another solution. Um, Stephen, uh, Resource Mapping Hawaii, can you tell us uh, how how you f- fit into this uh, solution. Sure, here yeah, happy to. Can and you guys can hear me okay? I'm yeah, absolutely. Yes, we can. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you know, we started this whole thing, uh, like Trey said, back a number of years ago, and and uh, you know, initially when we were trying to look at mapping these invasive weed species uh, across the state, um, we were trying to use satellite uh, data to do that, and. We had a really difficult time for a number of different reasons that we don't need to go to necessarily right now. But suffice to say that we figured out that one of the best ways that we could do that was to uh, use high-resolution aerial imagery to do it and, uh, and, and figured out that um, the human eye and, and brain turned out to be one of the best ways for us to pick out these individual species um, and individual plants across the landscape. And so uh, then it was just a, a process of trying to figure out how to collect high enough resolution uh, aerial data to do that and turned out to be quite a, a challenge. And at the time when we started doing all this kind of thing, um, you know, the highest resolution data most people were collecting was, you know, in the to eight to five centimeter range. And 
while that sounds like it's really um, really high resolution for for those of us that know about this kind of stuff, it, it it turned out to not even be close to resolute enough, and so we had to get down to the scales of uh, two and then one centimeter resolution before we could actually really start consistently picking out these species so, um, using eyeballs. So you can't and, uh, go to Google uh, Google Earth and just zoom in really really far. That's not good enough. Well, <laughs> well, the thing is, is if you've ever zoomed in really far on Google Earth, you know you can zoom in and it and it looks pretty good until you get too far in, and everything starts getting really pixelated and mm-hmm. and you might see the roof of your house line it looks pretty clean and, and defined, but if you zoom into the tree in your yard, you start saying, oh, geez, well, what kind of tree is that? It's, it's really difficult to tell. And, and what we figured out is that we needed to be able to see enough detail and leaf structure and crown structure in order to be able to really tell these species apart. And uh, and so, yeah, that, 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 that major step up in resolution turned out to be the key part. And, uh, and then figuring out how to do that consistently over, you know, more than 100 acres um, you know, we're talking, you know, 20,000 acres of area, for instance, um, and then doing that in a way that you can, you know, put it all together and, and dig mosaics and, and, you know, and then serve it up on the web, for instance, like they're doing now. It's, you know, it's, it's a, you would be shocked at how much data there is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in terms of the image capture, how was that accomplished to get the resolution that you needed? Well, actually, the way we solved the problem, um, we we had tried a, a bunch of different approaches and, and looked at a bunch of different um, ways that other you know companies in the in the world have been doing it, and are collecting you know aerial imagery. And the problem was that the sensors just weren't made for for collecting at that scale. They the sensors either didn't fire fast enough, or the um, platforms, meaning the planes or helicopters, didn't fly slow enough and low enough. And and uh, there were just a lot of difficulties that we finally hit upon a, on an approach that required three different sensors, and, and we collect, basically what we're doing is we're collecting imagery at two separate scales, um, using one scale to do the, the ortho, um, orthophotogrammetric portion of it, which allows us to, you know, make a nice, um, tight reference image that we can then tie to the ground, like a Google Earth image, instance, most people are familiar with, um, that has, you know, um, georeferencing information about it, and then we have a, a one centimeter data product that came out of these two other sensors that we would then reference back to the the um, uh, the photogrammetric product, the, the mosaic, and and we were able to get it that way. And but it was it's been really a, a difficult process, and 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 uh, and but also very telling, and and that the type of data that we're getting turns out to be really useful. Mm. So, you know, this might be a good time to uh, bring uh, Shai into the conversation and kind of maybe, Shai, you can explain to us how this uh, this imaging that uh, Stevens Company Resource Mapping has uh, been been brought together via Tomnod and, and made accessible to the crowd. Yeah, absolutely. So um, at Digital Globe, we fly five high-resolution satellites. And the challenge then is, well, great, they collect about a million square miles a day, how do you understand what's going on inside each of those million square miles, right? Mm-hmm. And so the key innovation that Tomnod brings is to be able to understand what's going on inside the image and convert it to information that you can make decisions based off of. So what we're doing is going from millions of square kilometers and millions of square miles into just key features. Now, in this, in this case, with the Nature Conservancy, we found out that they had this beautiful um, uh, this beautiful high-resolution, incredibly high-resolution imagery, aerial imagery, so not digital globe imagery, but rather beautiful aerial imagery, and we wanted to act in the same way. We wanted to take gigabytes and possibly even terabytes of information 
and of data and convert it to useful information that can help guide their response to these invasive species. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the, the I would imagine that some people aren't as familiar with Tom Nod, um, but it did kind of have a moment in the sun for unfortunately less um, positive reasons because you talk about the scale of the amount of, uh, uh, of geography covered here by this imagery, and when the uh, Malaysian flight was uh, disappeared, there was immediately that task of how do we search this wonderful imagery of the earth, but we need to check every little section. We need to find some systematic way to have hundreds and hundreds of people help in this search. And so that's basically what I believe the Tomlod platform does, is it allows the the sharing of that search um, to look for something, correct? Uh, yeah, exactly. That's, cr- that's correct, Ryan. And, and the key point here is instead of having one analyst now look pixel by pixel by pixel mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, at all of Kauai or all of the Indian Ocean, for that matter. What we're doing is we're saying, hey, many hands make light work, right? We can split this giant image into little pieces and ask people online, people whose heart wants to help uh, to conserve conserve Hawaii's uh, Hawaii's natural vegetation and to conserve and to identify where MH370 might be missing or might be lost um, and trying to tap into that and having them help help our cause. And so not any one people person in the public is actually solving the problem, but each and every one of them is helping us move closer to the solution. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, Jason, maybe you can tell us, uh, how, did, how did the Nature Conservancy sort of uh, uh, have that aha moment to leverage the technology that, uh, that Tom Nod uh, has? As, as Shay was suggesting, we were going through it through the analysis process at a very slow mm-hmm. rate, mm-hmm. using one or two people to go by pixel by pixel by pixel. And so it was taking quite a long time. And, and one of the other challenges about working in the forest in Hawaii is that it's very remote. So these are places that we want people to care about, but they're so far away and people can't get to them. So we were thinking, well, what kind of vehicle might we bring the forest to the people and might be able to speed up the process? And so we started looking around essentially for different sort of crowdsourcing mechanisms and wanted to experiment. We didn't know how good, of a, how good data we were going to get back. We still, at the end of the day, need to have really reliable sources of information to know where the weeds are, um, but we wanted to experiment and see, hey, is there a way that we can do this? And we just found Tom Nod online and, and started the conversation that way. Now, Trey, when someone's uh, doing this, uh, or, or whether it's someone who's tr- uh, trained in it or perhaps a member of the public that wants to support, what specifically are they looking for? How, how can you, I mean, what are the ways that you use to differentiate between native forest and an invasive species? Yeah, that's a good question, and I, and I think that's kind of the crux of the issue. I think, um, you know, when you're trying to figure out how to differentiate, um, say, for instance, an Australian tree fern from different other ferns in the forest, are there certain visual keys that you need to have in order to really be able to do that? And, and that's what resources mapping has done, has developed those visual keys um, for a lot of the species that we're working with. Um, in, in, on Kauai, uh, fortunately, Australian tree fern really sticks out. It's one of those things that's, that's pretty easy to see. And, and really the challenge um, in the areas that, we, that we're doing the project with Tom Nod on is that uh, there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Australian tree ferns in these areas. This is the area that's really the core of the infestation on Kauai. And what we're trying to do is figure out uh, where exactly the, the boundaries of that core um, exist and, and where we need to focus our efforts in order to, to try to contain it. And so um, the, 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 pro- the problem is, I guess the challenge is that having somebody sit there and, through the go- and going through the monotony of, of picking out each individual plant over and over and over again and, and, and the fact of, you know, 
just people just get tired. If one person can do it for a while, and then they start to kind of get get a little dizzy, I imagine. And so, um, in this case, with with the crowdsourcing um, through Tomnod, it's great because the more eyes you have looking, the more you're going to find. And at that point, you know, at this point in time, we're really trying to find as many as possible to really try to figure out exactly where we need to put our resources and and uh, and focus our efforts. So, so when we uh, got the word that this uh, crowdsourcing application was was up and available to participate in, I mean, of course, we're all excited because we like to do that kind of kind of geeky stuff. I'm I'm kind of curious uh Jason, I mean how how many people are actually participating at this stage of the game and and could there be could do you need more? I think Shai just got statistics as of okay. today in okay. fact as to how many people are participating in the project. And of course you don't even have to be in Hawaii to participate, That's right? That's right. That's right. exactly right. Yeah, so today we've had 7500 people contribute to the task. So 75 people distributed around the globe are helping to solve this amazing problem in Kauai. 7,500? 7,500. 7,500 wow. people are, are, are giving their brain cycles to try to solve this problem. And that sounds like a considerably greater uh, amount of help than you know, maybe one or two very overworked nature conservancy uh, specialists, for it, example. It, that's exactly right. And actually, uh, these 7,500 people have made over 1.3 million observations. And so mm. meaning that 7,500 people have each tagged Australian tree ferns or African tulip trees, basically these invasive species throughout the, throughout the landscape. Now, Stephen, perhaps uh, as a developer of uh, the technology that helped get the really high-resolution images, um, I, w- I would be kind of curious, how far are we? I mean, it sounds like that using human eyes, whether it's a, a missing airplane or a certain kind of plant, human eyes just cannot be matched. I mean, how far away do you think we are from there being an algorithm or, a, or, or some magical uh, uh, sequence of math that could do this identification instead of requiring humans? Well, that, you know, it turns out that's a really, that's an interesting question, of course, and, and you know, there's a couple of different ways that, that folks around the world are, are trying to work at this particular problem, and, you know, there's two approaches. There's one, which is, you know, you have a, a imagery products that have lots and lots of um, information in them in the form of spectral um, information, so you have what's called a hyperspectral imagery, if anybody's heard about that, and, you know, you have lots, you have a light spectrum that's broken up into many, many um, parts, and then uh, you hope that these different plant species potentially have a unique signature within that spectrum that you can then parse that out and 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 separate them. And in some cases, it actually works really, really good. Um, the problem is that there are some cases where it doesn't, and there are a lot of species that aren't separable spectrally speaking. And then, and then we have these folks that are looking at um, you know doing uh, object recognition and taking software to try and train them to do basically what the human eye and brain does. And, and, and that works to a degree, and for certain things, it, it actually does a really great job. The biggest problem is is that what's hard for to teach a machine is, is um, and that your brain really gets, is context. And so, for instance, in these visual keys that we've developed, you know, so resources map in, or resource mapping in Hawaii, excuse me, developed the whole analysis portion of this thing as well. And, and, um, and you know, part of the visual key process, it, you know, takes into account a whole bunch of variables. It's, you know, it's not just a variable of what does the you know, what does the crown of this plant look like? But it also takes into account, you know, how close is this plant to another plant? And, um, you know, what's the, you know, what are the conditions in which you're finding it? You know, is it a gully or is it in a, at the top of a, of a mountain? Because, you know, the human brain realizes, oh, well, you know, yeah, this plant is only going to be found in this particular spot and under these particular circumstances and maybe right here under this, you know, this tree it's unlikely or whatever. There's a lot of variables that, you know, people can, can incorporate in the process. But, it, again, at this point, it's sort of difficult to teach a machine to do. And so I think it's possible, and it's certainly coming down the pike. I don't imagine it'll be too bad off along, but, you know, maybe another five or ten years, and, and it'll be happening. But in the meantime, you know, being able to take advantage of 
thousands of brains and eyes uh, to do this stuff, it, it's great. It's a great concept. So, Stephen, I've, I've got a question. I mean, I, I went and uh, uh, looked at some of the images, you know, uh, marked out some of the uh, Australian tree ferns that I found, but I was a, a little bit uh, uh, taken by the... I thought it would be a little bit more clear or more uh, higher resolution. I, I mean, I, I kind of thought that the images were a little bit uh, uh, fuzzy. I mean, is it because of the the fact that uh, there's some uh, motion component that's already measuring into this, and and there's a, a you know a, an amount of blur that uh, is is just inherent in the system? Yeah, actually, it turns out that there's there's about a million different things that can they make the, the, the imagery very difficult to, to be very crisp and clean. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you might have noticed when you were going through the data, if you were looking around it at multiple spots, is that you'll go from places that are so sharp and crisp that it's like, wow, it blows your socks off at how beautiful it is. And then you'll get to a part where it's, you know, sort of blurry and smeared and whatever else. And there's a, there, the reasons for those are many. And like I said, and, and primarily what they have to do with is, yes, some, some of it has to do with motion blur. So as you're flying through these valleys and canyons, whether you're in a helicopter or an airplane or a UAV or whatever you happen to be using, there's a lot of winds and a lot of movement that mm. at times the sensors can stop that motion, but at times they can't. And when you're resolving down to resolutions of a centimeter or, or eight millimeters, you know, any teeny tiny movement um, that, that can't be stopped by the sensor, you know, gets, you know, incorporated and all of a sudden, yeah, you have a little blurry spot or well, a bit of blurry images or whatever. Right. But then the other part of the process that can actually blur things out um, has to do with the fact that, you know, you'll notice that we're also working in some of the most amazingly difficult terrain areas. And so trying to take these flat images and stretch them over you know, terrain and topography that's changing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of feet in very short distances turns out to be a really difficult mathematical problem and and, uh, and also can incorporate all forms of, of um, artifacts and imagery. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're working in, like, some of the hardest places on the planet to ever consider collecting one-centimeter data. And uh, and so the fact that we're actually having any success here is just a, is a great thing. Oh, I absolutely. Like I mean, and with that change of topography, you just opened my mind. Like, try to focus uh, a camera during a soccer game or something, mm-hmm. and it's probably right. just a similar challenge. One um, one quick question uh, before our break. I do want to talk about, like, for example, what does the control element of this look like, and how do you access them once you've identified them? But uh, you did mention UAVs, and um, during our news break, we talked about um, the uh, the the NOAA and uh, Fish and Wildlife Service using drones to survey uh, species in the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument. Um, are, are How more widespread or increasingly widespread do you believe UAVs are in collecting the kind of imagery that you collect? Yeah, actually, that's a great question. And because, you know, of course, since we're an aerial imaging company, we're developing UAV platforms as well. And uh, and so that's our, our biggest chore right now is to try and develop a UAV platform and, and sensor package that collects this level of data consistently over larger areas. And, you know, it turns out that, you know, it's, it's again, quite a difficult proposition even with the UAV. And, uh, and so we are actually having some really great results uh, from the different um, packages that we're using. And I think that it's, it's going to be much more ubiquitous, actually, relatively soon. More and more of these UAV sensors and, and um, platforms are going to start being able to do this. And so I think this, this level of detail will probably become pretty common. No, that's, uh, that's great stuff, and uh, we would definitely want to talk more about uh, some of the technology that goes on behind uh, some of this uh, mapping uh, capability. But we want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Jason Sume, uh, Trey Maynard, Shai Harnoy and Stephen are um, 
uh, Stephen R. Badges. Ambigus. 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 <laughs> okay. Uh, about using this technology to assist the fight against invasive species. Have you been able to quantify the value of crowdsourcing? How can you apply your eyes to this project? We'd, of course, love to hear your questions, 941-3689, or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. On Saturday, July 12th, the Jim Hubbard Band brings their folk rock and blues originals to HBR's Atherton Studio. Led by veteran singer-songwriter Jim Hubbard, they'll be featuring new material from their upcoming release. That's Jim Hubbard on July 12th at 7.30. For tickets, call 955-8821 during business hours or go online to hbrtickets.org. I'm Beth Ann Koslovich. Next on Town Square, youth activism, island style. What defines it? How much power does it wield? And what substantive change is it driving? Our panel includes Lisa Grandinetti, John Prime Hina, and James Koshiba, and you. Thursday at 5 for Town Square. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Jason Sumie, Trey Menard, Shay Harnoy, or Shai Harnoy, I'm sorry, and Stephen Ambagas about citizen science and community engagement. And how do citizens benefit from their participation? Of course, you can give us a call here, 941-3689, or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. Now, you know, this is, uh, you know, this the components that go into putting this whole uh, technology together is, is is fascinating because there's so many pieces in this puzzle. But, you know, for the most part, we're, we're talking about sort of the front end and getting 7,500 people participating and identifying where Australian tree ferns and, you know, the African tulip uh, uh, tree is, is um, uh, growing. But now that people are marking these uh, uh, plants, uh, we're kind of curious what happens next and, and what is it? On the part of either, uh, you know, on the uh, the Tom Nod side, and then on the Nature Conservancy side, what is it that uh, now happens as a result of this? So I can talk a little bit about what we're doing to ensure the reliability of the contributions. Mm-hmm. So we have seven thousand five hundred people on the internet, some of which are skilled, some of which are not skilled, and so we have an algorithm we call it CrowdRank that goes through and determines people's reliability. And the way it does it is by if you try to think about it intuitively, we show the same image to multiple people. And if they agree with each other, independently arrive at the same conclusion, it tells us that, A, that's an Australian tree fern, and two, those people are pretty reliable because they're able to agree with each other. Now, if somebody's just tagging willy-nilly or not understanding the mission, or need, we can determine that they might need a little bit more training, they had a little bit too much coffee, not enough coffee, right? But we can now discount their contributions. Mm-hmm. And what this allows us to do is to take 7,500 people, over 1.3 million annotations, so million observations, and actually create a reliable map of where these ferns are located. And that's where we hand it off to the Nature Conservancy for them to go through their mitigation practices. Well, um, I, I do want to talk to uh, uh, 
uh, Shay, uh, about what uh, or Trey about what the, that control might be. But I am curious. Um, Bert gave it a shot, but I did not, and I'm, I I want to know what it would be like to to join. Like for example, you said Tom Knott has a lot of people who just love doing this sort of thing, and presumably people from outside of Hawaii are jumping on this project just because they like the crowdsourcing platform. Mm-hmm. But if I wanted to do it, do I need a, a flash plug-in? Do I need a specific app on my computer? You just need a Mac. <laughs> what do I need to participate? So it sounds like there's some rivalry here on the Mac PC. <laughs> I, won't, I don't want to get into there. But um, um, you really just need a web browser, a modern computer with a modern web browser, so Firefox, Chrome, something like that, and you can gain access to the system. Uh, we try to make it as intuitive and simple as possible. So I like to use my mother as a barometer for whether we're doing a good <laughs> job. Uh, when we show the system to an expert analyst, they always ask for more sliders or more options or more access to spectral bands. And the fact of the matter is that we're not trying to enable the expert analysts. Mm-hmm. We're trying to make it such that people at home can contribute with limited training and not just contribute for fun, but actually produce reliable, meaningful data. So, so when I participated in it, and, and it was quite engaging because uh, there are areas of the map, and you don't know whether other people have marked the areas of the map, and you're finding the tree fern, and you're feeling like, wow, man, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm helping, <laughs> I'm doing something. And so you're marking and putting a, a pin on it. And and then so I was feeling good, and then of course it re- reinforces that by saying you have now contributed X number of pins, and I was I was feeling pretty good about myself, and then I started to actually put pins on places that have already been identified, which I think what you're saying uh, validates my my ability to to see the right you know kind of uh, tree fern. But what that gave me was a little bit of a disappointment because <laughs> I didn't find the first one or I didn't mm. put the first pin on it. So I'm, I'm looking through the whole map trying to find where are the spaces that nobody else has found <laughs> so that I can be the first one to put the pin on. It's that early adopter thing we've all kind <laughs> it of It really is. It really is. And I think that what you're getting at is kind of the gamification aspect mm-hmm. of it. I love mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we want to make it fun, right? And so we give you know points and track your contributions and track your reliability, try to keep you engaged. Not only keep you engaged for the sake of you continuing to, 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 to participate, but also to, to focus you such that you produce more reliable data, such that to train you right, when you've agreed with somebody, such that you don't go off on your own and you know, invent tree ferns. Rather, <laughs> you actually find tree ferns that have been identified by others. And that's kind of how the system works. And, and we're constantly toying and sampling and doing A-B testing, trying to identify um, how to keep people engaged and how to, how to produce the most reliable data from these folks. Mm-hmm. So you have 7,500 people contributing. You have over a million data points uh, finding these tree ferns. Now you need to try to do something about it. Um, Trey, uh, when uh, Tom Nod delivers to you a little USB stick with a million uh, map points on it, where do you go from there? That seems like a significant challenge. Uh, probably run and uh, climb under a rock and hide. <laughs> um, no, uh, well, yeah, that, that's the that's the next step is to is to what you know what to do with the Australian tree ferns once they find them. Um, so, in the while we were developing this uh, this technology to map. The, uh, the Australian tree ferns. Um, we were also developing a technology to try to, to try to kill them from the air using a helicopter. And um, but the thing was, you know, we we re- recognized the areas that we were trying to, to control them. A lot of them are in, in, in really good native forest. And so, uh, if we're going to be talking about using herbicides uh, from the air in a native forest, we had to do something that was uh, extremely safe and extremely precise, like surgical precision. We did not want to have any overspray or damage in the surrounding plants. 
And so uh, we worked with a company um, here on Kauai, Airborne Aviation, and a scientist from uh, University of Hawaii, Dr. James Leary. And uh, we developed um, uh, an herbicide cocktail that was very safe, breaks down really quickly in water uh, within a matter of hours, um, and, uh, and, re- and very quickly in soil as well. So there's no um, residual herbicide left in the, in the ecosystem, and, uh, and it's very effective. And so um, it's, uh, it's, it basically hangs from the helicopter like a pendulum, and, and it squirts a tiny amount of herbicide into the center of each Australian tree fern. And that was kind of the uh, Achilles heel of the Australian tree fern, is that all it takes is a tiny little bit of herbicide right to the growing tip of, the, of this big tree fern, and it kills the whole tree fern. And so we were able to, to, to treat each tree fern with only about 10 to 12 milliliters of herbicide, um, and and they would die. Um, so, um, and it was it was actually pretty pretty impressive that we were only using a tiny amount of herbicide overall. We actually have, over the past six years we've treated over 11,000 Australian tree ferns and about 10,000 acres, and we've only used 23 gallons of herbicide. Which actually, is, um, Trey, one of the things I think we covered on our show last year was a story about how it was like you were shooting zapping paintball guns or something i mean some pretty pretty targeted <laughs> yeah, yeah we tried that too and um and so yeah you know we're 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 looking at all uh, all options to try to minimize the amount of herbicides that we have to use to control these weeds um and still be effective and and so then after we've done this this treatment um one of the really great uses of the aerial imagery uh is actually to be able to refly some of these areas that we've treated to see how effective the herbicide treatment is um, and also how if we're actually keeping up pace with the spread of the of the invasive plants and so um, you know one of the big questions is like are you go in there and you and you and you, and you douse uh, or you you know apply a little bit of herbicide to these trees these tree ferns uh, what comes up in their wake um, are we actually keeping pace with the recruitment um, of, of younger Australian tree ferns and so um, we actually reflew some of the areas that we've been working in for the last uh, six years and what we're finding is that um, we're about 98% effective at killing the Australian tree ferns that we treat with the herbicides. And secondly, um, after we've actually treated a whole bunch of, herbi- of, uh, of Australian tree, f- tree ferns, that we've actually uh, reduced the population by about 62% in the first pass. So that's really actually pretty, um, pretty encouraging because that means we can go back in and, and, uh, and do a second pass treatment and pretty much control the population within a given area. And, um, and so that's important to know because um, the, and the aerial imagery has really played a, a huge role in, in, be, in enabling us to do that at a large scale. And so that's, um, you know, so now we're looking at, you know, okay, so then what's the next task? Well, the next task is, is going to be harder because the areas that we really want to be able to refly and re-monitor with the aerial imagery are presumably going to have a lot fewer Australian tree ferns. So it's going to be kind of more of like a needle in a haystack. Mm-hmm. So it, it could be a lot more challenging if we were going to, to maybe crowdsource that out. You know, it could actually, it's not going to be like, uh, you know, what it, what it was in this, this last project. It's going to be a little bit more challenging. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, when you start to uh, do the control I, I've been I've been told that uh, you know it's not eradication it's it's uh, more of a control uh, a method but in terms of going back and and uh, now the images have changed so would the is is sort of the Tom Nod piece kind of out of the picture now because you've already got your data points and then you're just going to be working off of that snapshot and then would there be a new snapshot that needs to be taken if people wanted to go in and and re-identify you know where the existing populations are oh yeah i mean i think this is you know this is kind of a never-ending thing i mean obviously like you just said our goal isn't to eradicate 
the Australian tree fern. What we're trying to do is prevent it from, from spreading into the core of our watershed and damaging our water resources mm-hmm. here on the island. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to be an ongoing project. And I think, you know, after we have gone in and treated, like I said, after we treated a certain area and we've reflown that area with, with the, uh, the high-resolution imaging from resources mapping, um, that, yeah, we're going to need to have, you know, we're going to need to go through that imagery again and try to pick out how many Australian tree ferns are left and where they are so that we can direct our helicopter pilots um, to go out there and, and zap them. So, that, so, yeah, I think that there's, you know, it's, it's definitely an ongoing project. Right. And I think now that we're trying to expand uh, what I call a buffer zone around the core of our watershed um, to, to try to reduce the amount of tree fern spores that get blown into the, uh, into the alakai, which is the core of our watershed. And, and so as we expand that, that buffer zone area, we're gonna need, it's going to be an ongoing project. Yeah, we're going to need more mapping to try to find the locations of the plants and then more remapping to try to uh, see how, how effective we are at, um, at controlling the, the population. And here I am on the, the popular science uh, website, and there's a picture of you, Trey, hanging out of a helicopter with a paintball gun. So <laughs> some parts of your job, I imagine, are more interesting yeah, that's a house than others. Now, so, Stephen, um, how frequently are you making these surveys? Is it on a project-by-project basis, or you're basically in the air all the time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have a lot of flying that we're doing um, around the state, so... You know, this particular project that, that um, you know, Tom and I have been involved with and um, is, is one of the projects with the Nature Conservancy, but we're doing lots of flying and on other islands for the Nature Conservancy. And then, you know, we've, we've worked with a number of other agencies, you know, developing this product through, um, you know, the, the different watershed partnerships um, and invasive species committees around the state have been involved in developing this product. Uh, the federal government in the form of uh, some grants uh, through the USDA and and other folks have all, you know, been involved. And so we've done a lot of mapping projects around the state, um, testing this, this particular approach out and, and determining, you know, so we, we, in this particular case, we're looking at Australia tree ferns, and, and, but, you know, there are a number of other species that are, are really detrimental and, and in different places um, turn out to be really difficult to map. And so, yeah, we've been, we've been doing this a lot in a lot of different areas. Um, Jason, uh, in, while this project is ongoing, as like you mentioned, it's never going to be a one battle. It's just going to be an ongoing battle. Um, I would imagine that you are thinking of ways to apply the same idea, the same technology, the same mixture of tools to other projects. True? Absolutely. So the idea of, of crowdsourcing, one of the next steps after we get the data is to, to be able to figure out how accurate it was. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll have our expert data where somebody combed through very slowly and figured out where each of those were, and we'll compare that to the crowdsource data, and we'll get a sense. If it's successful, then it's something that absolutely we might be able to apply to other areas. Now, we did pick probably one of the easiest things to be able to find. As Trey said, the Australian tree fern stands out on Kauai, and so we'd have to... It's not a one one shoe fits all type of situation, and we'd have to be, look at the situation and the vegetation, figure out where we might be able to best apply. Yeah, it. I was kind of wondering, uh, you know, because the Australian tree fern is kind of like a low hanging fruit. Uh, uh, if you were to try to come up with a program to remove, let's say, uh, myconia or or maybe the banana polka or something, I mean, you'd have to come up with a whole different strategy. I would imagine. Right, and and that's what Stephen was alluding to that there are a lot of different species in coming up with sort of a, a search. Um, signature mm-hmm. for each of the different species, and it's contextual as well. So, what banana polka looks like on Kauai may look very different on the Big Island, mm-hmm. and so for mm-hmm. each of those landscapes, we'd have to to determine that we'd be able to identify them positively. Now, now, Stephen, I, I would think that there's a there's an opportunity here for you because uh, I would think that if you're out there mapping and and if uh, 
if Amazon can come up with drones that deliver packages, I'm sure you could deliver a, a you know a paintball. You know, we've been thinking about that really hard. <laughs> it would be really great. Now, is that is that something that, that uh, is in the near future, or per- perhaps maybe you know more like a couple of years out? Now, I don't uh, want to you, know, you know I don't want to put Trey out of business, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, and Trey, this is Trey. This will be Trey's business. But it's, it was his idea to begin with, actually, as mm. it turns out. No, if we could find out, uh, you know, figure out a way to have these drones, you know, out there pollinating, you know, unwanted plants with herbicide, I think that would be fantastic. Um, and uh, and would certainly probably decrease the, the cost of that whole process mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. be more effective. Um, you know, it's one of those things that, that we can all see and doesn't feel like science fiction anymore. Um, but I would assume it's probably yeah, at least, you know, three, four years out at, at the best before we start, we could start doing that on any scale. Okay. So, Shai, if somebody wanted to uh, get in, get involved, and beat Bert's record of map pins for the tree fern, and, I'm going to go and start and leave them in the dust. <laughs> how does someone get involved with this specific crowdsourced mapping project? Yeah, so if you come to Digital Globe's Tomnod website, so if you go to www.tomnod.com, there's a lot of information about the significance of the challenge and how you can get involved. It's really just one button click away once you get to tomnod.com. Fantastic. And, and uh, um, yeah, Jason, I mean, uh, any, th- any place where you want to point us to to get more information? We also have the same link at tnc.org mm-hmm. where we have more information about the watershed itself, what's, uh, what's there on Kauai, and some links to the project on Tomnod also. Sounds great. How long do you imagine them, this particular program will run? Uh, that's a good question. I think we may have had already more information than we need, but it, like I said, it's a great opportunity also for people to see what's in the watershed and what's out there. True. So we'll, we'll leave it up as, as long as they'll let us. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Shai, you know, I'm kind of waiting for that donate button to pop up every so often so that, uh, you know, they can ensure some funding for <laughs> this project on a going forward basis. Paintball guns out of helicopters ain't free, you know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Jason uh, Sume is the director of Landscape Science, and Trey Minard is the director of Forest Conservation both are from the Nature Conservancy, and Shai Harnoy is the senior director of geospatial big data. And of course, Love we wanted to talk. Yeah, we want to talk about <laughs> that. Uh, and to, uh, uh, from Tom Nod, and of course, uh, Stephen uh, Ambagus is the co-owner of Resource Mapping Hawaii. Whenever you come to Hawa- um, Oahu, uh, we want to get you on the show. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Mahalo. Thank you. Mahalo. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about two new energy startups who recently graduated from the Energy Accelerator. And, of course, if you missed any part of this edition, you can find a podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email us at news at bitemarks.org. Or you can find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And I'm at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Wussy and a song called Asteroid. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.